in February of this year, we began our journey of walking through the book of Ephesians in the Bible. And we titled the sermon, New Nature, New Community, to capture the very essence of this book. In Christ, God has redeemed us and has given each of us a new nature that is Christ-like. And He has also placed each of us in a new community, the church. That is like unlike any other community in the world. This, in essence, is the central message of the book of Ephesians. So today, we've come to the last sermon in this series. Now, we already looked at chapter 6 with the earlier sermon of spiritual warfare. And uh, as I mentioned in that week, we're going to close uh, by going back to the second part of chapter 5 uh, in the book of Ephesians. And, and this passage is, the passage we're going to be looking at is one of uh, the most defining ways in which the Bible describes marriage. So allow me to read the passage for us. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verses 22 to 33, it'll come up for us on screen. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Allow me to pray. Uh, Father, we pray that even as we come under the teaching of your word, would your spirit enable us, Lord, to cast out wrong notions that culture has imposed upon us, and to embrace joyfully and wholeheartedly the biblical paradigm of marriage that you've given us as part of your creation design. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Before I really get into the passage, uh, I want to mention two things. First, a dear friend of us named Gunnar, who is the uh, CEO of City to City in Asia Pacific, he preached two sermons on this very passage. Uh, one for the men and one for the women. The sermon uh, on men was, what does headship really look like? And what does submission really look like? Uh, and because his sermons were so excellent, I'm not going to cover that ground. Uh, but we've already shared the links to those sermons on the WhatsApp group, New City WhatsApp group. So you can check that out if you missed that earlier. 
If you're not part of the group, let me know. We'll be happy to send you the links. That's the first thing. Second, I would imagine that, that living in the kind of world that we live in, some of us are bound to have some doubts about this passage. Aren't men and women equal before God's eyes? Aren't men and women co-heirs with Christ? Aren't men and women of equal value, worth, and significance before God? Weren't men and women both made in the image of God? And aren't men and women who are followers of Christ both being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus? The Bible's answers to all of these questions is a resounding yes, 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 and yes. Men and women are absolutely of equal value, worth, and significance before God. But if this is indeed the case, why does the wife have to submit to the husband? Why is the husband called to headship? This passage does point us to some answers to the question, and I hope to unpack this to the extent that God will enable me to do this morning. So we're going to look at the why of this passage. And I want to draw two things for us from this passage. First, the true meaning of marriage. And second, how headship and submission unveil the true meaning of marriage. The true meaning of marriage, that's the first. And second, how headship and submission unveil the true meaning of marriage. Let's start with the first thing, the true meaning of marriage. I guess we all do tend to, to kind of focus on the first part of the passage. and Maybe we haven't given enough attention to the latter part of it. The first part of the passage basically talks about the how of marriage. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. So the first part of the passage is the how of the passage. The second part of the passage, perhaps the less understood part, is the why of the passage. Why should the wife submit and why should the husband lead sacrificially like Christ? And this is where I'd like to begin with this morning. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this verse, as most of us may have guessed, is a direct quotation from the creation account in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And once having said this, Paul goes on to say, the Apostle Paul, a disciple of Christ who wrote this book, he goes on to say this in the next verse, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Simply put, Paul is saying that God's original creation design for marriage is a profound mystery. God presided over the marriage of Adam, the first man, and Eve, the first woman. And now in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul inspired 
in the Holy Spirit, in the canon of scripture, he is telling us that the very divine institution of marriage instituted by God at the beginning of creation is a profound mystery. So what is this mystery? Why is marriage a mystery? Whenever the Bible refers to the mystery of Christ, it always means a progressive revelation of Christ. The patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even great men of God like David, all of whom were ancestors of Christ Jesus, had only a vague revelation of Christ. But to us, Christ has been unveiled fully. And in the Bible, every reference to the mystery of Christ is a reference to the progressive revelation of Christ through the ages. The book we are studying in this sermon series, Ephesians chapter 3, is actually gives a very good example of this. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 4 to 5, this is the Apostle Paul writing again. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made, made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, the word mystery here refers to a progressive revelation of Christ. So when when in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that marriage is a mystery, what he means is that marriage is yet another way in which we receive a progressive revelation of Christ. And so this is the true meaning of marriage. Marriage was given to us so that we might receive a progressive revelation of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Uh, Theologian Wayne Grudem, he explains it this way. He says, although Adam and Eve did not know it, their relationship represented the relationship between Christ and the church. They were created to represent that relationship. And that is what all marriages are supposed to do. In that relationship, Adam represents Christ and Eve represents the church. This is profound indeed. And we must not gloss over this. And I'm going to argue this morning that we are all perhaps seeing marriage upside down. Think with me for a moment. How do we generally relate with this passage? How do we generally apply this passage? We think Christ loved the church sacrificially, so husbands should love their wives sacrificially. And if husbands love their wives sacrificially like Christ, and if wives submit uh, to the husbands as the church submits to Christ, then everybody will be happy, joyful, and blissful in marriage. This is true. This is good. But if we stop with this, we are missing something. You see, in this interpretation, Christ is pointing to marriage. Paul is saying, the Bible is telling us that a marriage should be Christ-like. But Paul is not saying that Christ is pointing to marriage. On the other hand, on the contrary, he is saying that the profound mystery of marriage 
marriage is point to, pointing to Christ is ma- because marriage was designed to bring us a progressive revelation of Christ. You see, in the first interpretation, Christ serves a marriage. The ultimate end is, is, is a happy, joyful, uh, blissful, highly romantic marriage and Christ can help you achieve it. If we see things only this way, it reduces Christ just to a means to an end. This cannot be true. Christ is the end. Marriage is not the end. Christ, he is the ultimate price. Prize. It cannot be that Christ is pointing to marriage. On the contrary, marriage, which is infinitely the lesser of the two, is pointing to Christ. And that's why I'm arguing that we are perhaps seeing marriage upside down. If we only look at how Christ can give us a better marriage, that would be wrong. We need to be looking at marriage as a way to receive a greater revelation of Christ. So Christ is not a mere means to enjoy marriage. No, on the other hand, marriage is a means to enjoy Christ. In, in the highly romanticized and highly sexualized world that we live in, most of us, even those of us within the church, we quite so often desire marriage because we have a, a, a romanticized idea of our own fulfillment in marriage. Again, this is God's gift to us. Uh, sexuality and romance is a gift. Um, romantic love is a gift that God has given to husband and wife. But that's not the end of marriage. Yes, marriage does bring fulfillment, joy and fulfillment. But Paul is calling us to see here that more than our own joy and fulfillment, the greater biblical goal of marriage is a deeper revelation of Christ. Christ is not a mere means to enjoy marriage. No, marriage is a means to enjoy Christ. He is the ultimate price. The greater meaning of this passage, according to the Apostle Paul, is that human marriage is a mere image of the greater marriage between Christ and the church. That's what he's saying in verse 22. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the earthly marriage is only a metaphor. It is only an image. It is only a shadow. It is only a signpost that points to something truer, that points to something greater, that points to something more beautiful, which is the very person of Christ Jesus. And so our marriage is meant to be a living drama that reveals to us how Christ and the church relate to each other. John Piper Another pastor, he puts it this way. He says, if you want to understand God's meaning of marriage, we have to grasp that we're dealing with a copy and an original. 
that we are dealing with a metaphor and a reality. We are dealing with a parable and the truth. The marriage between Adam and Eve and the marriage between every man and woman is only the shadow. The marriage between Christ and all of us as church, that is the true and real substance. Earthly marriage, therefore, is just a signpost. Don't settle at the signpost. Don't settle at the signpost. You know, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 19 years old. I have to, I hate to admit it, but I have to admit it. Uh, the hormones were raging. And, you know, it seemed to me that as if God had given me more than my share of, of the hormones. So it was uh, not an easy time for me as, as, as a teenager. All I could think about was, was sex. And I became a follower of Christ Jesus and uh, I began to learn the truths of the Bible. Uh, I learned that if you're a disciple of Christ, you have to carry the cross. I said, amen. Uh, I was taught that if you follow Christ, you have to die to yourself and live for Christ. I said, amen. Uh, you know, they said persecution would be part of the journey. Not only did they say it, I experienced persecution even from our own parents because none of them were from, uh, the, 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 none of them believed in, in, in Jesus I was uh, living generously, uh, I was uh, living sacrificially, and I bore it all gladly. And then someone told me that there is no marriage in heaven. And I was crushed. You know, I almost experienced a crisis of faith. Are you serious? No marriage in heaven? That means no sex at all for, for all eternity? I was crushed, you know, as a, as a teenager, just learning to understand faith in Christ Jesus. I was crushed. You see, at that time, I did not understand that our present and our future union with Christ Jesus brings infinitely more delight than all the love and romance and sex that even the best human marriage can bring. It took me a long time to realize that earthly marriage is not the real deal. The, the reason earthly marriage is given to us is to point us to a greater marriage. And so here's a practical application. To seek marriage or to enter into, and to enter into marriage and to live out marriage from a perspective of only how can we be happy in marriage is to make marriage less than what God intended it to be. Instead, all of us as followers of Christ, we are called to see marriage as a pathway to a greater revelation of Christ. Simply put, the ultimate goal of marriage is not a happy marriage. That's, that's the byproduct that is given to us. The ultimate goal of marriage is a greater revelation and delight in Christ. You know, even as I say that, I do need to take a moment to acknowledge that sadly, broken marriages, difficult marriages, are part of this broken world. It's, it's reality. Um, some couples struggle. Some couples separate. Some couples live 
perhaps live in an unhappy marriage all their lives. And that's a sad reality of a broken world. But this is where this truth that this marriage is not the ultimate gives us hope. It doesn't matter how good, bad, or ugly your marriage is, there's something better that is waiting for all of us in eternity. It doesn't matter if some of us unwillingly end up spending our lives as singles all our life. It doesn't matter because something truer, something greater, something better is yet to come. So this is the true meaning of marriage. Marriage points us to Christ. And that brings us to the second thing I want to draw out for us from this passage. How headship and submission unveil the true meaning of marriage. How headship and submission unveil the true meaning of marriage. We need to be very clear here. God's word is not calling men to unqualified and unconditional headship. Nor is it calling women to unqualified and unconditional submission. The the headship and submission here is, is qualified. It's a very simple qualification, but it's a pretty deep qualification. The sacrificial, the husband, his headship is qualified in the sense it needs to be Christ-like. And the submission of the wife in the marriage again is qualified that it needs to be Christ-like. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as all of us submit to Christ. But how do we submit to Christ? Do we submit to Christ because it's a command we better obey or else? Not at all. Our submission to Christ is joyful. Our submission to to Christ is, is voluntary. And so just as our submission, all of our submission to Christ is joyful and voluntary, so too the wife's submission to the husband is joyful and voluntary. I do need to take a moment to talk to the husbands here. Just because the Bible says so, we do not have, says wives need to submit, we do not have a right to demand submission from our wives. This passage does not give us a license to do that. If we do demand submission, it, it is no longer submission, it becomes subjugation. Subjugation is to, is to bring someone under our domination or control. And so I hope, I do hope we are able to appreciate the difference between submission and, and subjugation. Submission is 100% joyful and voluntary. It is given freely. Subjugation is demanded, even forced. This is not Christ-like. In the culture that we live in, submission has become a bad word. It has negative connotations. And really, if, if, we were to, if we were to really look at the issue, submission is not a gender issue. It is a submission issue. None of us want to submit. Submission, we're always doubting. We're always questioning. We've all, all been hurt. We've all been wounded. 
by improper use of authority, by abuse of authority and in different, at, at, at different levels. And so which is one of the reasons that we get this idea that submission is bad. At some deep subconscious level, every one of us, we reject submission. We reject submission because we have only seen poor and wrong models of both headship and submission. There is only one absolutely perfect example of submission, of headship and submission. Do you know where that can be found? Only in the Trinity. It is only in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is only the Trinity that do we see the perfect, the most beautiful expression of headship and submission. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equals. There is no hierarchy among them. The Father is not greater than the Son. The Son is not lesser than the Father. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his being. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, who is Christ Jesus, was God. The Westminster Catechism puts it this way. The Father and the Son are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Both existed from before the beginning of time. And yet, in this relationship of co-equals, for the sake of our redemption, the Father assumes headship and the Son joyfully and voluntarily assumes submission to the Father. Jesus said, he will do nothing except what he sees the Father do. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is co-equal to the Father, and yet he joyfully and voluntarily submitted to the Father. Jesus became obedient to the Father even to death, even death on a cross. Christ submitted to his Father joyfully, even to death on a cross, even though in every sense he was co-equal to the Father. And so the Bible invites us to see this relationship between the Father and the Son as a pattern for the earthly marriage. Both are co-equals, but the Son joyfully submits to the Father. And this is, this is so beautifully captured in one verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand, the Apostle Paul says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Christ the co-equal submitting to God the Father joyfully and voluntarily. And you see the beauty of this verse. It is telling us that just as, the, just as the head of Christ is God, even though they are both equal in power and glory, the husband is the head of the wife, even though they are equal in God's eyes in value, worth, and significance. 
But why? Why are there different roles for the husband and the wife, even though they are co-equals? It's actually quite simple if we see earthly marriage and the call to headship and submission through the headship and submission that we can see in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. God in his sovereign good pleasure has invited the husband and the wife to grow in two different parts of Christ-likeness. God in his sovereign good pleasure has called the wife to be Christ-like in submitting to her husband even though they are co-equals just as Christ submitted to his father even though they were co-equals. Similarly, God in his sovereign good pleasure has called the husband to be Christ-like in sacrificially loving his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me press into that question again some more. Why? Why the need for a distinction? What is... What is happening here? Why the need for this distinction? It is only in this distinction that the full beauty of Christ is brought out. The reason God has called the husband and wife to pursue different aspects of Christ-likeness is that in Christ, is that Christ may be glorified by the husband and the wife together. It's, it's the coming together of two different pathways of Christ-likeness that, that brings out the full richness of the person and the beauty of Christ Jesus. In marriage, the husband and wife are called to take on different roles of Christ-like headship and Christ-like submission that together display the glory of Christ Jesus to the fullest. You see, in marriage, the husband is taking on the path of Christ like headship, loving her wife, his wife sacrificially, and the wife is taking on the path of Christ-like submission, submitting to her husband as Christ submitted to his father. And so this is how two different pathways of Christ-likeness, of growing in Christ-likeness, that God has differently called men and women to, both equal in value, worth, and significance before God, This is how headship and submission unveil the true meaning, unveils the true meaning of marriage, which is a greater and greater and greater revelation of Christ Jesus. If the true meaning of marriage is a progressive revelation of Christ, then it is only in headship and submission that together we can see Christ in all of his glory. As I said earlier, there's another couple of sermons that I would really encourage you to look at. You know, for what of time, we're not able to really break, break things down and to really show what does Christ-like headship really look like and what does Christ-like submission really look like. But it is in the two coming together that Christ is glorified to the fullest. If you're a single with a desire for marriage, or if you're already married, would you dedicate your present or future marriage to the glory of Christ Jesus 
our ultimate bridegroom Messiah. Would you come to glorify Christ Jesus in our marriages through Christ-like headship and Christ-like submission in our marriage? Let me pray. Father, we worship you, Lord. Our Spirit of God, we pray, would you continue, Lord, to, to tease out this mystery? Uh, would you help us, Lord, to not be shaped by what culture tells us, but to be shaped by your creation designed for marriage as outlined to us in, in the Bible? Father, we pray, protect us from misinterpreting headship. Protect us from misinterpreting submission. And help us, Lord, to see headship and submission not from the prism of culture, but from through the prism, through the lens of God's word. Thank you, Father. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.